This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we head to the Austrian capital for its design week. We also review the recent run of fashion weeks in London, Milan and Paris with Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, and Monocle's head of radio, Tom Edwards. Plus, a visit to Stoke-on-Trent for the British Ceramics Biennale. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Vienna Design Week wrapped up over the weekend. Its 17th edition focused on the city's second district, where it was temporarily headquartered in a socially conscious hotel, which is currently undergoing a major refurbishment. This allowed for a variety of exhibition spaces and plenty of interactive experiences. Monocle's Alexei Korolev went along to the festival and sent us this report. I'm Gabriel Roland, the director of Vienna Design Week. Um, Vienna Design Week always uses temporary interim use buildings. Um, we had everything from a Baroque palais over a factory, storage, a hospital, uh, office buildings, a bank, and so on and so forth. We never had a hotel, though, up until this year. Uh, this year we have the privilege of working in the 60s architecture. It used to be a care home, then it was a hotel. Now it's um, going to be uh, redone. It's a, it's a very Viennese uh, spot. You feel like you're in the city and at the same time it's an unusual place in the city because it's right on the last row of buildings before the Prada starts, the big green. As is usual at Vienna Design Week, there is no overarching theme. And the exhibits and installations deal in everything from graphic design to ceramics to furniture to something altogether more DIY. Hello, so my name is Jean-Baptiste. So this project is called the Distraction Room. Jean-Baptiste Gambier is a Netherlands-based French designer. So this is a project I am working on in collaboration with uh, another visual artist who is also a friend, who is called Hugo Beregaray. This is an interactive experience, uh, basically, which is uh, separated in two rooms. We have in one part the distraction room and the other part is the repair room. Every visitor is welcome to first go into the distraction room. It's one person at a time. They have security gear and blindfold glasses and they will select a weapon of the choice and they will be able to enter the distraction room and have a minute to destroy whatever they want, whatever they like. On the same time, we are behind the wall playing music and sound effect, a bit like a video game experience. And then uh, once the minute is over, the person can pick up one item, one of the furniture, and then bring it here in the repair room to repair it with duct tape. Once the object is repaired with duct tape, the object goes back in the distraction room. To be destroyed by the To be destroyed the again by someone else, <laughs> exactly. So it's a constant circular flow of objects. Elsewhere, the festival included a tour of the Prater Amusement Park, Vienna's largest, and an exploration of the surrounding area's Jewish heritage. And at the nearby Postal Savings Bank, a masterpiece of early 20th century architecture, Vienna's University of Applied Arts, known simply as the Angewandte, sold works by its alumni. My name is Eva Weber. I work at the Angewandte Interdisciplinary Lab. And I'm hosting currently the Super Sachen Angewandte Alumni Workshop which is part of the Vienna Design Week. And we are here in the former Postschwarkasse. So since we moved in here two years ago, with the space, like the former cashier hall and all the counters, the idea was close to say, 
can we put something like over the counter or exchange is a big topic here also with the cafe exchange like what else can we exchange maybe the artworks to the public in a sense it's like a little pop-up in a sense yeah. yeah the festival tackled other topics too including urban agriculture and the concept of cereal production Back at festival headquarters, Laura Housley, a British design journalist and curator, curated a show called The Series. The idea, I mean, the idea of the series is this way of working is very typical for this group of designers. We're not pointing at this and saying that we've observed something that nobody else has observed. It's common to sit somewhere between art and industrial production in this kind of small-scale making um, with independent production is very common. It's how a lot of kind of new designers, emerging designers work. So with the series, what I wanted to do was just explore that. And so look at the different contortions that some of these designers put themselves through in order to produce multiple works. And of course, to produce multiple works is to survive. There may be no one theme binding all these various shows together, but there is one binding idea, an idea that's behind every installment of Vienna Design Week. The last word to festival director, Gabrielle Roland. My predecessor, Lily Holland, she, she always used to say, sooner or later, Vienna Design Week is going to end up on your doorstep. You know, we're, we're a nomadic festival, so each year we uh, pick a district and we pick a different building in this district and we uh, look for ways on how to uh, make this district approachable. I think this is a fascinating approach both for visitors because they see the place they visit in a very different way that we wouldn't maybe normally. Um, but it's also an important thing for, for the people living here because it gives them agency over their surroundings. Yeah. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Searching for some bright new ideas to kickstart your summer? The Monocle Companion, 50 Ideas for a Better World, is our cheery new paperback, and it's on newsstands now. Brimming with thoughtful essays, our new book is the ideal summer companion to snuggle up with on your sun lounger. Under the covers, you'll find insights on entrepreneurship. You'll learn from thinkers, authors and essayists, and it tackles everything from how to travel better to the difficulty of doing nothing at all and why words matter. From big topics to small intrigues, this is a book that offers inspiration, ideas, wit and wisdom. The Monocle Companion, 50 Ideas for a Better World is out now. Buy your copy today at monocle.com shop or on all good newsstands. Welcome back to Monocle on Design, and I am joined in the studio by Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, and uh, Monocle's head of radio, Tom Edwards. Welcome. Hi, Nick. Hello. Thank you for having us. Oh, it's always an absolute pleasure. Um, now, a little bit unusual to have Tom Edwards in the studio for Monocle on Design, normally the host of The Entrepreneurs. Give us your fashion credentials, Tom. What made you put yourself forward to do this part? Well, as I understand it, Nick, I'm not here because of my audio expertise and nor for my fashion credentials. I'm qualified to be here precisely because I am unqualified. I'm bringing an untrained eye. I'm going to be reactive. I'm going to speak off the cuff and from the heart. Natalie, you've been on the road over the past few weeks, Paris, Milan, 
London seeing fashion shows. We want to cast your eye and Tom's eye and my eye over the looks that you've seen. You've sort of worked with May Lee, the show's producer, to pull together some images for us from each of the shows. Maybe a nice way to do this is just to break it down show by show. So we're going to start in London with Burberry, which we talked about the other week on the show. They, they nicely rebranded Bond Street. It sort of guided people from there to the actual show itself. What was the big look or the big theme that ran through the Burberry show? What was exciting this season is that they are going back to Britishness, right? So we saw them, they took over Bond Street and they made it Burberry Street. They had a food truck all around town giving beans on toast. And then it all culminated uh, with the show. And the idea is back to tailoring, back to the outerwear and the trench coats that they're known for. And British rose, which is why you see a lot of prints on the catwalk. Tom, does this this resonate with you as a British man who grew up on beans on toast? uh, What you're seeing in this collection, what we've got laid out in front of us, does that resonate with you? Well, absolutely. And of course, I remember when I was still in short trousers, the birth of Burberry back in the 1850s, I think it was. I joke, of course. But not far off. It's interesting that their their core brand has gone back to the future. The, The sort of the charging horses back. They've gone a bit more curly with their typography away from the so-called clean lines of kind of 2010s. And it looks the same, exactly as Natty said, on the catwalk as well. There's a cheeky little monochrome vest number. Is that the one that jumps out at you? It jumps out at me. No T-shirt underneath. I can imagine you rocking that. I think I could do a T-shirtless with a little bit of chest showing through. Natalie, talk us through one of these looks that I guess jumps out at you. So I agree with Tom. I'm I'm just interested in them going back to their roots. So if I were going to buy something, I would go for one of the really classic trench coats. The only difference that's worth noting is that they haven't gone back to old price points. So now this trench coats cost £5,000 and upwards. So I don't know if that is uh, something that you guys would invest in or now that they had, they are having the, this rebrand, do you pay more attention to Burberry? Would you go and, and buy the vest? I might be coat? tempted. I probably, on balance, would lean towards maybe a small family hatchback instead. Well, jumping ahead uh, now to Jonathan Anderson's show, Plasticine clothes? Tom, I know you spend a lot of time playing with plasticine. Sometimes you let your kids join in as well. This is quite a youthful look. Natalie, you were at this show. How did people respond to seeing, I guess, this this almost looks like Wallace and Gromit has come out of the screen and onto a catwalk? So Jonathan Anderson loves conceptual look. And if you remember, I did receive a block of plasticine as the invitation at my desk. This was the, the, the plasticine clothes sort of opened the show. I think it was more an artistic expression. He wanted to play around with with the shapes and make a statement. But when the show continued, you also saw some really beautiful, very practical, utilitarian clothes. And he did say that he wants to blend the everyday with something a little bit more playful and conceptual. And I really loved the entire show. There's also a parka right there with feathers coming out of it. I asked Maylee specifically to put it because it's on my wish list and I wanted to get your opinion of whether I should buy it or not and wear it to the office. It's bold. I like it. Is that ostrich feathers, is it? I like Jonathan Anderson and I think what's really interesting about what you're saying, Natalie, is that you can see that that's how he operates because he'll do big collections for, say, a big high street player, very, very approachable, accessible, good price points. And then I like that he does his own thing. It's a little bit more avant-garde. I would wear that big bomber jacket as well. What size is that, though? That's like a five times XL, no? No, but it's meant to be oversized like that. So maybe we can oh, get to and, and match. 
Okay, I think you get two or three people in there. Jumping ahead now to Milan, we're going to go through Milan quickfire. We've got three shows picked out here. First is Switzerland's Bali. I mean, Natalie, where did this show rank in, in terms of what you saw across the week? Bali, again, we were speaking of rebrands. They had a creative director from LA come in just for one year and they tried to bring rappers onto the front row and make it all cool and 90s, a lot of skin being revealed. It did not work out and they have a new designer and a full rebrand and it's really back to classic clothing and their Swiss heritage. I mean, this is lovely for me. This is something that I could see myself donning in the office maybe. 100%. Look at that beautiful oversized suit. Then up at the top in the middle, look at that guy. Looks like a postman. I would rock most of these looks. I will say I am slightly disappointed that the only pattern is a dress. Maybe I could rock that. Maybe that could be a little crop top number for me. But yeah, what I'm, I'm liking, there's you a lot of colour. You can make a special order. Uh, exactly. Have yeah. you got, have you, you've got the connection for 100%. me, obviously. 100%. Okay, brilliant. There's punchy colours here, punchy forms. This is one of my favourites that we've seen so far. Speaking of punchy colours and forms, we're jumping ahead to Bottega Veneta. I mean, Natalie, take it away on this one. There's a lot going on here. This is always my personal highlight and... The collection is all about craft. They say they explore craft in motion. And this one was travel a lot of, I mean, mainly has picked out some of the more loud, interesting looks. But there's a lot of classic tailoring, solid colors, suits going on. And then because the theme was all about being on the move and travel, a lot of raffia and fringes and everything is made by hand. I mean, the first dress was the one that closed the show that you're seeing there and it cost something like £30,000 because of how much work goes into it. Some really extensive fringe work or tasseling. Is it around the hem of that three-quarter length black and white gents great coat? Uh, The good thing about that, I guess, for the shorter statured man... Polish your floors exactly. while you're walking around in it. hundred percent. I mean, I uh, we had a Maltese poodle growing up, and sometimes I just kind of push him along and maybe, did, maybe did, he's got did a, couple, a similar job. Maybe he's got a couple of those under, up under there. <laughs> Would you wear that, Tom? I lo- I love the colours. Bit of fringe. <clears throat> the tasseling is. Very extensive, isn't it? Jump ahead to Gucci now. They've had a big rebrand. I mean, I must say what, what's jumping out at me about these images is lots of different textures, a little bit of leather mixed in with there, some sequins, which I'm particularly drawn to, like a magpie. Natalie, what news was surrounding this in Milan? It was the biggest show of Milan, I think, because of the rebrand, because of how big the brand is. And they used to be a lot more maximalist, but now it is a bit more... Back to the 90s, you can see that the Gucci logo belt is back. It, it is a lot more sleek and a completely different. They've chosen a burgundy red color as their branding and they dressed up billboards and the trams in Milan ahead of the show. So it's a different look for Gucci. It's a little bit more commercial. And I think a lot of people will be buying the double G belts again. Mm-hmm. So back to the 2000s, 2010s. It's slightly more understated elegance. There's these kind of mini dresses with the logo belts and some really sharp jackets. There's sort of burgundy hot pants with a kind of, what is that, and a kind of evening, a light evening jacket in a sort of bile green colour, which, I don't know, it slightly offends my eyes, but I, strangely, I, I want to see more. I'm really impressed by how you're describing the clothes, spoken like a true fashion writer. And I agree with you. I'm also not a big fan of lime green, but I'm, I do love the accessories and the tailoring and it looks really put together. And, and it was inspired by all the elegant Italian women that walk around in, in Brera in Milan. 
there's no better inspiration than real life sometimes. I mean, we're having a slight gear change here uh, with the Dior show, which is what I want to go to next. This feels very feminine. I don't know if I personally could see myself wearing any of this. Maybe there's, there's a lovely white jumpsuit. Natalie, a lot of these seem to be really fine tailoring, really beautiful, elegant cuts, very, very feminine. What was your favourite or your highlight from the show? I really love the collection because it is really feminine, but if you can see all the models are wearing flat shoes and it's easy silhouette, so it's all about making sure women can walk around easily and feel free. But one thing that I would love to get your take on, like after the show there was debate around the art that was shown in the screens all around the tent at Dior and it was these big feminist statements about women's rights and also one of the statements talked about capitalism and that capitalism doesn't take women where they need to be, which is quite ironic given that Dior is an LV major, some of the biggest brands that thrive on capitalism. So, yeah, what do you think about politics coming onto the runway and this kind of statements shown alongside luxury collections? It's thought-provoking, maybe a little bit antagonistic, which I rather like. I don't know how constructively proto-feminist some of the messaging is. Fuchsia with yellow is not a marshmallow. (laughs) Mm. I mean, uh, maybe there's a hidden message. That seems to be pretty kind of gender agnostic to me. But I like it. I like the stripes. There's a bit of Barbie. It's fun, no? Some, Some of these sleeves look a bit impractical. Doesn't the sleeve need to end before the hand? Maybe, yeah. That's a good point. Good feedback. I would caution people to, for example, operate heavy machinery whilst wearing that guard. I mean, that's wise advice. I think the other one is, are there pockets in these? Because that, for me, always seems to be the biggest thing between me and my, my female friends. It's like I comfortably have somewhere to put my hands if it gets a little bit cold or stash my phone. Maria Grazia Curie is quite big on making sure it's flat shoes, pockets, flowy, easy silhouettes. I do like that. End the tyranny of the heel. Yeah. yeah, I'll just throw that in there as well. I mean, I'm, I can't say I've been brave enough to try them. We're going to wrap up here with a Balenciaga. What was the big news surrounding them during Fashion Week, Natalie? As you might have read or heard in the last year, Balenciaga had a huge controversy around some of its advertising campaigns that included younger children. And while I was in Milan speaking to some other fashion critics, they thought that Balenciaga is over and it is really hard for them to come back. They did a show that was quite interesting, brought journalists, uh, some of the designers, family members and friends to walk the show. And he said that he just went back to his roots and did a show in a collection that wasn't about polished and luxury as we perceive it, but about garments that are a little bit rough around the edges and can be worn very easily on the street. Nick Manis, if you look at our friend on the far right-hand side there, with the upside-down sunnies on, big pair of baggy loon pants, heavily textured jersey, what looks like a Tesco bag for life. That's something I could imagine Nick Money Manis. I think I could see myself wearing most of them. I I typically tend to cuff my trousers. There is something about that I always find appealing during fashion weeks where you see things that you maybe less so are more something that I could see myself actually wearing. And maybe that's the appeal here. I mean, there's also some punchy patterns uh, happening on on a quite skinny silhouetted dress. She Uh, doesn't look like she's having much fun, though, does she, that lady? Is that that the purpose, Natalie? That's a Balenciaga look. They always look really mad and annoying. Can't I have a bit more fun with it? Uh, It's like she's chewing a wasp. (laughs) 
Maybe that's a nice point to almost leave on. I mean, Natalie, can I ask for some closing remarks? I know the Chanel show is taking place today. That's closing the fashion week. It's been almost a month of shows, starting in New York and now ending with Chanel. Usually it takes place in the Grand Palais and, and finishes the, the whole month. But what they do really well, and I think this is why we love the brand, is that it's always familiar codes and um, and things that kept being redesigned and hence the, the success of the brand. So we're still going to have to wait and see what this season Virginie Viard puts on the runway. But I think it's, it's going to be a great end to the week because we know what to expect, more or less. Closing remarks. Maybe, Tom, we'll start with you. What, what have you learned from this little briefing we've done right now? I have learned that it's best to trust the experts. And Natalie, as an expert, does that feel right? No, I, I really enjoyed hearing um, more of an outsider's perspective because I do feel like that sometimes within the world of fashion, people either over-intellectualise certain conversations and topics. There's no risk of that happening if you ask me no, about it. No, here we're just keeping it simple <laughs> and also sort of make too much fuss about something that only exists within the fashion bubble. So it's always great to open the conversation. And you know a lot more than you think. Plus, I think me and Tom will buy a J.W. Anderson parka for next spring. That's my main takeaway from and, this. And split it. I like that. Well, Tom, you might be an outsider in fashion, but you're certainly welcome here on Monocle on Design anytime with Natalie and I, who regularly do these breakdowns. Natalie Theodosi, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. Finally on today's program, we head to Stoke-on-Trent, where the British Ceramics Biennial is well underway. Here, the UK's top ceramicists and emerging and established international talent are showcasing their work in clay. Exhibitions, installations and events take place against the backdrop of the city's famous industrial heritage. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, went along to have a look. What you're hearing right now is one of the many ceramic instruments made by the Bristol artist duo Copper Sounds. These vessels explore the acoustic and resonant properties of clay and are on show as part of this year's British Ceramics Biennial. I start my journey in the cavernous hall of All Saints Church. This site of worship expanded from a small parish church to become one built by the potters for the potters, of which a huge number arrived in Stoke-on-Trent to work in the booming ceramic industry in the mid-17th century. But why has Stoke-on-Trent become such a hub for ceramics? As artistic director and chief executive of the British Ceramics Biennial, Claire Wood explains, to understand why ceramics developed and prospered in the city, we need to look below ground. Stoke-on-Trent sits on two things, and that's clay and coal. And so in the early days, when ceramics were fired in coal-fired bottle ovens, Stoke-on-Trent had both of those things. So Stoke-on-Trent sits on a very rich bed of red clay. Not great for making sort of very fine ware, but it's brilliant for making things like pipes and tiles and bricks. And that happens to this day. There's a lot of talk about how the ceramics industry has reduced over the years, and it has over the last three or four decades. However, there's still a lot of ceramics, there's a lot of innovation, there's some incredible things happening in Stoke-on-Trent. So ceramics is still very much central to what happens here. 
As part of the eighth edition of the event, some of the artists featured have had the opportunity to work alongside big-name manufacturers still based in the city. When we have the opportunities to go out and go to industry and say, we've got an idea, can we have a cup of tea, can we invite you over, can we talk about it? I'm always so heartened by the response that we get. Johnson Tiles, the UK's only large-scale manufacturer of ceramic tiles, are one company that took the team up on the offer of a cup of tea. Johnson's have been working with one of our award artists, Jasmine Simpson, and they were just so open to it. It's absolutely wonderful. Jasmine is making a fireplace inspired by a Hellmouth fireplace, which is looking at ideas of domesticity and security within the home. Jasmine's an incredible ceramic painter, does this wonderful sort of freehand ceramics where I could watch her for hours painting. She makes 3D figures, but she also makes tiles. What an amazing thing to be able to celebrate that, work with one of the heritage companies. It's just massively good fun and ambitious and has got clay at the very heart of it. It's over to the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery next, where the artist Osman Yusufzada is making use of the natural building material cob. His installation, Embodiments of Memory, looks to the presence and meaning of clay and the earth at the end of one's life, as Osman explains. The central element is actually the grave liner. The grave liner becomes a seat. It's actually lifted um, to ground level and there's a walkway cut into it and it becomes a seat where the mound, where the earth would normally kind of exist, it's actually moved over to a mound and through those mounds there's these, these flags or what they're called alums, these placeholders or these markers of territory. The work is really how do we create spaces to memorialise, how do we create space to we keep going back to the same space to remember, whether we inter someone or other kind of symbolic universalisms. There's a textile which is quite sort of embryonic, uh, which same textile I recently showed at the Whitechapel, and that's and around it is basically these series of sort of black greys wrapped ceramics and that's the continuous conversation that I keep kind of having. It's how someone actually identifies their own space through their kind of objects basically and actually creates intimacy and creates kind of like ways locks and keys so you can't really rifle through their belongings. And the space is really of how, how do you transcend into other spaces from one space and you do that through your kind of, through the, this idea of imagination that you kind of have. But then there's physical elements, flesh, even if it's dead flesh, actually goes and is, is kind of interred into the earth and how we're connected clay and brick and the earth. What is it about this that appeals to you? Or what is it about the stories that come with it? I like to create environments which are kind of transportative, but also a place to be able to tell a story or unravel a story through kind of like physical objects. And I'm very lucky to be able to do that. The ability to work with cob and learn how to work with cob, so I, 
I learned how to play with Cobb basically and make Cobb for the first time during this. So it's actually learning new skills. The idea of just being close to clay is a very primordial kind of like a substance, a material which actually is kind of life-giving. We're surrounded by it, we're built into it, either you know, okay, cement is replaced so much, but a lot of people were interred into it. A lot of people have actually lived in it. They've eaten from it. It just surrounds you completely. It's off to another of the biennial sites, the Brampton Museum, where the artist and professor of ceramics at Staffordshire University, Neil Brownsword, presents his exhibition, Obsolescence and Renewal. A Stoke-on-Trent local, as a teen, Neil apprenticed in the ceramic industry. I was trained at the Wedgwood factory at the age of 16, learning the craft of model and mould making, which is a tool to facilitate the copy. So it's been embedded within me a long time and the history of this place is you know the foundations of this tradition are based upon the copy you know the cultural copy and it's this idea of the copy that his exhibition explores tea drinking became fashionable in the mid 1600s with tea drinking people need tea wares when imports of chinese ceramics dry up there's a gap in the market for regional production here and they start to uh, imitate and assimilate kind of East Asian styles and symbols and objects. It becomes this kind of hybrid mix of things, mash of different styles, which we know as a tradition of Stoke-on-Trent. Factories thrived economically on this, trying to imitate porcelain, and their version was bone china, which ironically now is being made in China. <laughs> as industry moves from uh, Europe back to East Asia. What I found most fascinating is this idea of the error, the glitches that can occur in the process of copying. Neil is well aware of the issues of intellectual property as well as cultural appropriation. I'm copying my culture, uh, which is a third-hand copy. But I'm, I'm also very interested in the slip of technology, the limitations of tools, limitations of materials, and embracing that idea of the error within the copy. The imperfection is something I kind of seek and, and kind of uh, put out there. Neil takes his knowledge in ceramics and fuses them into other mediums, including textiles that glitch and 3D printed models that show the intricacy of their workings. Just new technology like 3D scanning and printing gives me an opportunity to break the perfection of digital. It's got an immediacy. And again, there's a bit of snobbery about kind of um, things made from 3D printing, but it's just another material. It just gives me another conduit to explore an idea. These are just some of the numerous artists involved in this year's edition of the British Ceramics Biennial. For Monocle in Stoke-on-Trent, I'm Maylie Evans. The British Ceramics Biennial is on until the 5th of November 2023. It's taking place across various sites in Stoke-on-Trent. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, 
then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by May Lee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>